Hello, I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. This podcast is brought to you by RAIN Worldview, the premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Find out how RAIN can help you stay ahead of global events at rainnetwork.com. This is Rain's Essential Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Welcome aboard. Energy prices in Europe have skyrocketed over the past months, driven by the war in Ukraine. They'll remain high and get higher as that continues. You see, Russian natural gas is critical for producing electricity, heating homes, and powering industry in Europe. And Russia has reduced the flow to Europe. So there's plenty of uncertainty about the upcoming winter. Here with analysis is Matteo Ilardo, a Europe analyst with RAIN. Matteo, it's great to have you on board. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. So can you take us on a tour of the factors that are making energy prices so high in Europe? Sure. There's a combination of factors here at play. The main driver is certainly Russia's war in Ukraine and the related disruptions to natural gas supplies. Though, to be fair... Today's energy crisis did not begin with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It it began last year as the global economy emerged from the pandemic and energy demand grew. And so with it, uh, prices grew as well. Many would have expected Russia back then to increase um, supplies given higher prices. And instead, Russia stuck to contracted volumes and uh, and instead even uh, to to the minimum level, according to contracts. And many could have thought that that was uh, to just to keep prices high. And But in hindsight, uh, we can see this as a, as a clear evidence that Russia was most likely preparing the ground for what was about to happen. Uh, then, in fact, with the invasion of Ukraine and the first sanctions uh, against Russia, the Kremlin started reducing gas supplies into Europe for real. And now Gazprom is exporting only about uh, a third of contracted volumes or something like that. It's not even just Russia, actually. Uh, Heatwaves this summer increased demand for cooling in Europe, and then a drought is reducing hydroelectric production and output at nuclear plants all around the continent, while lowered water levels at European rivers, such as uh, most notably the, the Rhine River in Germany, are disrupting trade of key commodities such as coal and oil products in inland Europe, uh, which is, again, uh, pushing prices higher, and preventing companies from stockpiling ahead of winter. So if you match this with all problems with Europe's aging energy infrastructure, uh, for instance, uh, the example of France with uh, nuclear sectors, uh, with, with many plants uh, being shut now for, for maintenance, this has created something of a perfect storm for, for Europe's energy. As for the impact of all this, Western governments are spending billions just to subsidize fuel prices and, and keep energy bills lower, uh, let's say, to reasonable levels, although still expensive. And they're taking control of power companies such as EDF in France, or maybe bailing them out like Uniper in Germany. And at the same time, energy-intensive industries such as uh, metals, such as like smelters of zinc or, or aluminium, or in chemical sectors, uh, for instance, uh, fertilizer producers, are running below full capacity due to uh, natural gas prices being too high, and many already had to shut down. So overall, high energy prices are driving inflation up, hurting consumer spending, 
and reducing business activity uh, as a whole across the continent, which altogether is already pushing Europe into a recession, uh, probably already in, in the third quarter, maybe the fourth quarter. And this is happening right as the continent was recovering from the pandemic crisis. So, Matteo, let's talk about the impacts beyond just Europe. Yeah, the, the, as you said, impacts go beyond just Europe because unlike oil, uh, Russian gas that doesn't go uh, to Europe has most of it has nowhere else to go. Some of it goes to China, but most of it is simply taken off the, the global markets. Now, with the global energy market already being so tight, LNG volumes diverted to Europe to make up for losses in pipeline gas from Gazprom means that someone else is not getting that gas. And this, of course, puts poorer countries at disadvantage. Those who import LNG, like Pakistan or Bangladesh, must now compete with uh, European buyers that are systematically outbidding them. So widespread impacts, um, not just in Europe and overall, a number of factors at play, but obviously Russia is the main culprit here. Matteo, let's go back to the beginning here. Remind us why Russia is actually reducing gas supplies to Europe. By reducing gas deliveries to Europe, Russia has effectively weaponized its energy supplies to the continent and uh, opened what we could call a second front in uh, in the war against Ukraine and the West uh, as a whole. The, the goal here is obviously to drive prices higher, uh, creating economic problems and eventually political discord, but also to prevent European countries from storing enough supplies for winter, which could make things much, much worse when demand for heating increases uh, later in the year. If we look at the bigger picture, um, I think we could see this effectively as an energy war between Russia and the EU uh, that basically has been fought on on two sides, oil and and gas. European sanctions are mostly targeting oil, and this is done on the basis that targeting oil would hurt Russia's budget the most, while at the same time it would be much easier for Europe to find a replacement for oil than it would be for gas. Russia, on the other hand, focuses on gas precisely for the very same reason, uh, which is that it has the biggest impact on Europe and a more, somewhat more limited effect on Russia. In fact, gas revenues compared with oil, at least, and um, kind of against what uh, many may believe, play a relatively minor role in Russia's budget and, and therefore in the overall resources that Russia can direct towards sustaining its war in Ukraine. And in addition to this, If you think about it, if you reduce gas instead of halting it altogether, the increase in price largely does make up for losses from reduced exports. So it's kind of a win-win in this case, uh, with a cost, of course, but it it does make sense from a Russian perspective. So to sum it all up, Europe is targeting Russian oil exports that are the main source of revenue for Russia, which in turn is reducing supplies of gas that is key for European economies. And in all this, at least for now, Russia is indeed winning this war. Uh, In fact, Russia has already uh, found new customers for the oil that it can't place in Europe anymore, most of which is ending up in Asia, most notably India and China, and in the Middle East, uh, mostly Turkey. And some of it is actually still showing up in Europe before sanctions kick in. So a victory, if we can call it that, on the oil side, means that Putin can actually afford to sacrifice revenue from natural gas and reduce supplies to Europe. And in doing so, Uh, Russia has tried at least to maintain appearances. Uh, By that I mean that instead of announcing a unilateral embargo on on, on gas, for instance, Russia has often blamed technical problems related to sanctions, everything that makes issues with supply look like they are entirely self-inflicted by the West, which again 
serves very well its PR campaign to convince Europeans that it is only their government's fault if prices are so high. In fact, Russia's goal is to increase the economic and political costs of supporting Ukraine. But in a way, I mean, it does so in a way that it hopes, at least, that Western voters eventually turn against their own governments. And this is perfectly in line with what we saw being Russia's traditional divide-and-rule approach to Western's domestic politics. And the fact that the gas crisis does not affect the EU members equally plays even more in the Kremlin's hands as it brings the divide-and-rule strategy at the EU level as well. Oh, and by the way, just to conclude on this question, when I say Russia is winning the energy war, I mean on the short term, on the long run, and then it's a whole different story. But, but maybe we'll talk about that in another podcast. <laughs> that sounds good. So let me ask you um, about the European government's responses. I mean, as I mentioned in the lead, winter is approaching, and I assume there's a lot of concern about that. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, Amelia. And besides effort to support consumers, European governments are taking steps um, both on the demand and on the supply side to reduce exposure to the crisis now and to prepare against a worsening of the very same crisis in winter. The first strategy, I would say, is to move away from gas as much as possible and as quickly as possible. For instance, many countries are readopting coal, um, or trying to at least. A growing number of factories and power plants are switching from gas to oil or to coal again, of course, when they can. And and then once you have reduced overall gas consumption, the other main step is to diversify away from Russia as the main supplier of that gas that you still consume. Uh, So far, Europe has managed to compensate by increasing imports, mostly from Norway, uh, which is becoming now the new uh, largest supplier of natural gas to Europe, but also to Azerbaijan, uh, North Africa, mostly Algeria, and of course by increasing LNG imports from the Middle East and the US. This so far has allowed the European state to somewhat fill in storage at a regular pace. The EU average is about 75% of storage full, uh, for now at least, which has put it on course to meet storage goals, I would say, for October, October and November. In fact, building storage is a key strategy to prepare for winter. The EU is planning to have enough storage uh, to go through the winter um, in case Russia cuts uh, gas flow completely to Europe. Uh, Not entirely sure whether it's going to be possible, but then again, Russia still accounts for 15% of total gas supplies, which is a seasonable amount. So building storage is a key strategy. Then, of course, there are there are also more structural, longer-term solutions that, that include acceleration in, in the energy transition uh, to green energy, you know, and improvements in energy efficiency as well. But then again, we're only talking about emergency measures to go through next winter now. And then again, supply-side measures alone are, are not enough uh, per se. So EU states are also trying to cut demand. And last month, they managed to agree to reduce gas consumption by 15% uh, with uh, what is actually voluntary cuts. Uh, But those cuts could become mandatory in case of emergency. And they also agreed to sign deals to share the gas they save with with those countries that would need it the most. Uh, But then again, here, it it needs to develop a little more because we haven't seen as many deals on sharing gas as as we should see. Uh, And then governments are also preparing for a worst-case scenario that, unfortunately, I would say, is looking increasingly likely. 
and uh, that would see massive energy price increases and shortages that may lead to gas rationing this winter. Uh, so many governments to do so are drawing up contingency plans. And most of these plans prioritize supplies to households, uh, schools, hospitals, all, the, all those places where you can't really um, not give energy to, right? And then here the industrial sector is the one that will have to shoulder most of the burden and many factories may have to close down while prices still would become sustainably high for many families and businesses. Matteo, talk to me about which countries in Europe are the most exposed. And, you know, secondly, what are we looking at? I mean, how bad could this get? Well, not, not every country in Europe is feeling the impact of the crisis in the same way. Uh, economically, the impact is certainly greater in Central and Eastern Europe, where reliance on Russian gas is high and alternatives are, are scarce, I would say. It's, those are landlocked countries that are connected by pipeline for both gas and oil to Russia. Uh, but countries like Italy, Germany or Austria, for instance, are also very exposed um, due mostly to their high reliance on gas for things such as heat, heating, industry or electricity production. Uh, by contrast... The impact is smaller on countries such as Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Sweden as well. Uh, countries that due to their geographic isolation from the rest of the continent uh, are largely disconnected from Euro's energy network and they have limited reliance on Russian gas overall. overall. In case of a sh full shutoff in supplies, uh, certainly Germany but also uh, other large European economies including Italy and France, uh, for instance, could be forced to implement gas rationing plans. And that could cause a recession, uh, which of course would have repercussion for the rest of the continent, given the systemic importance of those economies. Again, the implementation of gas saving and sharing initiatives before and during winter could somewhat mitigate the impact of a total cutoff. It still isn't clear how effective this would be and, and whether there will be enough agreements in place uh, for, for it to be effective. Uh, now, as, as for how bad this can get, it's hard to predict what exactly Russia will do. In our baseline scenario here at RAIN, um, Russia will indeed continue to restrict natural gas exports, but it will not cut off supplies entirely to Europe. Uh, though, of course, a scenario in which Russia does decide to hold natural gas supplies to key European customers, notably Germany, of course, but other countries as well, is also a likely possibility, unfortunately. So either way, though, the trend line here is clear. Uh, prices will remain high despite the economic slowdown, uh, which will lead to a period of high inflation and economic recession. And how bad this will be will depend on the severity of future supply disruptions. Well, government will have to face growing pressure to scale up support for citizens. And all this while borrowing costs are already rising across Europe as uh, central banks are tightening monetary policy. And all this will lead to an even higher debt level across the continent. And anything, really anything, can play in the Kremlin's, hand, Kremlin's hands at, at this point in winter. So uh, downside risks here are very significant. Whatever could increase demand and or reduce supplies. Uh, for instance, uh, a particularly cold winter, not only in Europe, but in Asia as well, as demand there would take LNG volumes away from Europe. Or even, like I don't know, hurricanes in, in the Atlantic, storms in the North Sea, anything that could distract, disrupt production could easily tip the balance in Russia's favor. So no matter how prepared, European governments who've been supporting Ukraine so decisively until now may become less supportive once the economic and political effects are fully felt by their own voters. So 
To conclude, I would say here, energy solidarity among EU member states will make all the difference in the world to get through winter in Europe. Matteo Ilardo is a Europe analyst with RAIN. Thank you so much, Matteo. Thank you, Emily. See you next time. See you next time. RAIN Worldview is the industry-leading geopolitical intelligence solution. Analysis, interactive graphics, risk trackers, and global threat monitoring are just a few of the functions that come with Worldview. Sign up for a trial at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. 